In episode 416 with Dr. Sam Rader, we talk about how the first five years of our life determine how we see the world. It basically shapes our entire life, which I am so conscious of right now with a newborn baby. And I also love that she shares the 12 coping styles that we adopt unconsciously and how we can rewrite these styles to unlock our full potential. Plus, we dive into so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Guess what, my beautiful friend? My fourth book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy is out right now. Number one, New York Times bestselling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on comparisonitis. And multiple New York Times bestselling author Gabby Bernstein said, Since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this a sort of unicorn training manual. I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. Head to comparisonitis.com or Amazon to get your copy today. Hey, beautiful. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this episode because, as you know, I have recently had a baby girl and Dr. Sam Rader is here to share with us how the first five years of our life impacts our entire life. And we also talk about what we can do to rewire any unconscious programming. Plus, we dive into loads more. And for those of you that have never heard of Dr. Sam Rader, she has created a new approach to therapy called Source Code Psychology. She believes that in the first five years of our life, our early experience writes a source code in our unconscious, which then determines the rest of the way that our life and our story unfolds. And she helps people rewrite their code for a healthier, more beautiful life. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that's at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 416. And now let's bring on the incredible Dr. Sam Radar. Beautiful Sam, I am so excited to have you on the show. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Oh my gosh, it's actually a really good one. I had yummy coconut yogurt, not the kind that's in a plastic container, but the kind that's actually in a glass container. So it's really fatty and yummy with berries and coconut flakes and chia seeds and flax seeds and oats. And I put some rose water on top because I wanted to open my heart this morning. So it was next level. And I always have a hot cocoa for breakfast as well. I am coming over for breakfast. That sounds amazing. So delicious. Yes. Yum. Yum, yum, yum. Well, I am so excited to have this conversation with you today. 
You have a very interesting story and I want you to share how you got into doing the work that you now do. Take us back to the very beginning and how this all unfolded for you. Sure. So I'm a depth psychologist and... Wait, wait, wait. What is a depth psychologist? (laughs) It means that we look beyond the surface of things. So Mm -hmm. as opposed to looking at our cognitive thoughts that we're aware of, our conscious thoughts, and then also our observable behaviors, which are all the things that are on the surface of things, we look deeper into the unconscious patterns that drive us, the symbolic meaning underneath what we're doing and, and how our early childhood experience plays out in our adult lives. That's that's a depth therapist. It makes sense that we go deeper than just this surface. But, you know, I've never heard of the term a depth psychologist. It's another way to say psychoanalytic or sometimes psychodynamic. It's basically when we go beyond the surface of things, go a little, go a little deeper. I love it. Okay. So how did you become a depth psychologist? It's funny, you know, I started my own therapy when I was 23 years old. And I really was aimless at that point. I'd done every job you can imagine in a, in a few years time after college. And it was working with my own therapist that one day he just said to me, hey, what's the plan? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know, your life, the plan. And I was like, oh, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. And it was like, as soon as he asked, my soul had an answer. And I said, I think I want to do what you do. And I didn't know until he asked. And they said, okay, well, then you're going to need to apply to school and get going, you know? So I started my graduate program and PhD in clinical psychology when I was 24. And I've spent the last decade developing my own new approach to therapy that I call source code psychology. Yeah. Tell us about that. What is source code psychology? So um, I believe that in our first five years of life, our early experience writes a source code in our unconscious which then determines the rest of the way that our story unfolds. So in computer language, the source code is the original program that determines how the entire program will function. It's the original code. So when we are children, we're like little sponges, especially in our first five years. We're very you know, impressionable. And during that time, we learn who we are. We learn about ourselves. We learn, is it okay to be dependent? Is it okay to be independent? Is it okay to be a person? Is it okay to be sexual? Is it okay to be, you know, all these different aspects of ourselves? We're trying to integrate these at various stages of development. And depending on how our parents respond to us, some of those ways we get supported and we are able to integrate that part of ourselves. And in other ways, when we don't get what we need, we you know, have to adapt by adopting what I call a coping style. And those are kind of like the glitches in our code. And however our code is written, whatever our sort of overall experience is as little ones, those are the stories that keep playing out as adults. Those are the patterns that keep repeating. Some parts of those patterns are good and some parts maybe don't serve, but we just keep reliving our early experience. So I help people rewrite the code. Okay, so we can rewrite these experiences that may have happened to us in the first five years. Absolutely. It's incredible. That is really exciting. So I want to talk about that. But, you know, one of the main reasons why I was so interested in your work is because I've just had my first baby. So I have, she's just over three months at the moment as of recording this, and it's the best. It is so beautiful. And so I want to make sure that you know, I'm setting her up for a beautiful life. So talk to us about 
What happens in those first five years? And can you tell us the 12 coping styles? Yes. I mean, it is a lot. As soon as I start going on one, we could talk about that one all day, but I will do my best to give a brief overview. So your daughter is three months old. And so that means she's still working through the first two aspects of newborn developmental psychology, which one of the aspects she's working through is, do I belong here? Is this place safe? Will I be understood here? Is this is this the right fit? And so if our parents or you as the parent, if you're understanding her, if with her very primitive coos and giggles and cries, if she's able to communicate to you what it is that she needs, now I'm hot, now I'm cold, now I'm hungry, now I need space, now I'm tired. If you start to read her cues and attune to her psychologically, she's going to start to feel like all is right in the world. She's in the right place at the right time with the right family. She belongs and she can be understood. And if so, she becomes connected. She feels connected to herself and to this world and to you. And and if not, if our parents, for whatever reason, couldn't or wouldn't attune to us as newborns, we develop what I call the disconnected coping style. And we have to disconnect from this world because it doesn't feel like a fit. People aren't picking up what we're putting down. So that loop of communication is broken. And we either disconnect by becoming floaty, where we sort of get dissociative and and space out or flighty. We're always running from one place to the next and hope that the next place will feel like home, but it never does. Or stiff, where we sort of tense against the world and like look away from it, maybe get involved in fantasy novels or video games. Or we can become what happened to me, which was to be masked, where we actually over attune to our caregivers. It's like, maybe you don't understand me, but if I understand you, we can sort of get that loop of communication going. Maybe that feels familiar for you, Melissa. I don't know. No, it's, um, I'm just trying to think back to my earlier years and I definitely, I feel like for me, my parents very much tuned into me and yeah, they were very present. There was a lot of love and there still is, there still is a lot of love from my parents, you know, a lot of attention and a lot of love. Yeah. So. How wonderful. And the other thing is, you know, my theories about these stages of childhood development, none of us are going to be able to remember any of this. None of us remember what it's like to be a newborn. And we have very few memories before the age of five. So it almost doesn't matter where these coping styles come from that I talk about in my, my book that'll be out next year, but it's more how they show up now, how in the present moment, there are these psychological defense mechanisms that we think are just the way we are because it's how we've always been. But it's like an invisible prison that we're living inside of and we're not even aware. And once we are able to identify and go, oh my God, that's me. I am a control freak or I am afraid to say no or I am overly flirtatious or I am afraid to shine my light. Those are some of the different coping styles. Once we identify them and we go, oh, I have this style, it starts to work itself out on us and we can start to emerge and become free and embody more of our true nature more of who we really are, which is, you know, in my opinion, you know, the divine source energy. Absolutely. So if we have that awareness that, oh, okay, I'm playing out one of these codes, what is the next step? Because I know someone in my life who kept playing out this relationship pattern where Mm -hmm. she runs you know, she runs from the relationship. Mm -hmm. So she keeps playing out this pattern. And she has said to me, I run because I don't want to get hurt. 
So, you know, maybe in her earlier years, that was something that she witnessed. I'm not sure. But once we have become aware of this little pattern that we have unconsciously played out maybe a lot through our life, what is the next step? How do we rewrite that code? So it's interesting you bring up your friend because she kind of perfectly embodies what I was saying before about the flighty subtype of disconnected, where we keep running from situations in hopes to find the next situation we think will be a fit. But actually at the core of the disconnected wound is that we never experienced repair after a relational rupture. And so we don't believe in that cycle of rupture and repair. So anytime there's a rupture or break in the connection or misunderstanding or misattunement, we're like, well, that's it. Must not be a fit. I'm out. And we don't know about saying, hey, you know, earlier when you did that, it made me feel this and I'm hoping we can do this. And then we get to that beautiful repair. And that's how relationship bonds grow stronger. It's like when you go to the gym and you have to tear your muscle by working it out for it to build stronger. That's how a relational bond gets built as well. So the solution for your friend in particular would be for her to stay when she feels like running and to let the other person know to take that risk and be relational and let them know what she's thinking and feeling so they can try to attune to her and they can get back in repair and build a relationship that feels safe so she'll finally know what belonging and connection and the fit and home feels like. But how do people who are listening figure out which of the coping styles they are and what to do next? Well, you could look on my website, drsamrader.com, and I have each of the 12 coping styles in these little circles I call my ice cream cones because they are such delicious colors. I want to eat them. Um, and you can click on each one to see what it is and you know what its antidote is, how you can start to free yourself. And also I have a free coping styles pocket guide that people can download. And that's even juicier and has a lot of journaling prompts for people to be able to get started on uncovering if this is them or if this is someone they love and what they can do next. So can you kind of talk through just briefly the 12 styles? Okay. I will be as brief as I can. So the other newborn wound, I call it frictive. And it's when we're not held securely enough as newborns. And so maybe, you know what, I'm going to go through these styles, not talking about how they got formed, because none of us will remember that anyway. I'm just going to tell you what they're like. So if we have the frictive coping style, we need a lot of intensity. We're always going, doing, thinking, creating a friction to rub ourselves up against everything so that we feel tethered to this world. Because if we don't feel that intensity, we feel as if we might disappear or be erased or come undone or fall through space with nothing to catch us. So we're always looking for a lot of intensity, always a very full schedule, and we're kind of phobic of the pause or of silence or of stillness. So that's the frictive wound. Then we've got the omnipotent wound, which is when we try to control everything around us and everything has to be just so, or else we feel very easily overwhelmed and upset. We're highly sensitive people. Some people refer to those people as empaths. And we experience everything that is, everyone and everything outside of us, as an extension of ourselves. And so if we want to feel better inside, we have to control what's going on outside because we don't yet know how to self-soothe. We don't have psychic skin that can protect us from overwhelm. So coming out of that style is all about learning that we're separate from the things outside of us, learning how to self-soothe and embrace. Another coping style I call deprived. And this is if we feel sort of broken or empty or bad inside. And we feel like other people get the good stuff, but not me. Like I'm the one who can't attract the good stuff. And so because I don't have anything inside of me that can naturally attract the good, 
I'm going to have to sort of manipulate or steal care by either acting wounded, like playing victim or acting elusive, like come chase me or acting indispensable, like you need me or, you know, scavenging, which is kind of like it's taking when no one's looking or stockpiling, which is what it literally sounds like or charming. That's another subtype of, of deprived where we think we have to like sing for our supper and we don't realize that we can just relax and be loved. So coming out of deprived is knowing that we are actually good and that there's good stuff all around us and we can have the good and all of that. The next style is the symbiotic style. And that is if we feel like we always have to latch on to other people who we think are more powerful than us and that they're going to provide for us and protect us and guide us. And we're not allowed to say no or have a separate sense of self or an opinion. And we have to just go with the flow and be people pleasing. So coming out of that is to become solid and to trust that we can firm up and take shape and know what we know and still be in connection with others, that we can be separate and connected. Another coping style I call premature. And this is if we are the perennial caretaker, we're always taking care of other people and our needs are always last on the list. So we're running around, volunteering, being the the best in our class, overachieving, giving, 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 all our vectors or lines of energy are pointing out and we never learn how to receive. So coming out of premature is all about becoming nourished, knowing it's okay to need and okay to feed. And this often also shows up in eating disorders, the premature wound. So it's learning that it's okay for us to need and feed. Shall I keep going on? There's so many more. Please, please keep going. I think that was five. Let's keep going because this is fascinating. Okay, cool. So next is the idealizing style. And I ordered your book in the mail, but I haven't gotten it yet. But I'm assuming from the title that your book is about the idealizing style. So your book is called Comparisonitis. And the idealizing style is when the only part of ourselves that we're oriented to are our outsides, how we look, how we measure up, what we achieve. And so it's like we live in this vertical hierarchy where we're looking up to the people we admire and looking down on the people who we think are beneath us. And it's always a comparison. If I'm not the best, I'm the worst. And all of our attention is on our outsides, just the layer of our skin. And in order to come out of the idealizing style, we become fully human and embodied. And we know ourselves as sentient beings and that we have a rich inner world of thoughts needs and feelings and our essence energy. And we start to orient to that depth within us instead of reducing everything to the two-dimensional objectification. Does your book talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. So maybe later we'll go more into that one. But the next coping style I call frustrated. And this is when we feel a lot of resistance in our lives. Life feels hard. Everything feels tough feels like I can't. I can't move. I'm stuck. Things are stuck. Things aren't going the way we want them to go. And this is a sneaky one because actually it's a, it's a self-sabotage that's unconscious. And we're actually sort of harming ourselves in order to make a protest of the things we don't like in the world instead of just aiming our will toward what we do want and making sure that we organize the world how we want it to go. But we feel a little bit powerless if we have the frustrated style. And we feel like the only way to win is to lose and make other people lose. So it's a lot of uh, passive aggression, self-sabotage. And so coming out of that is to be empowered, to want what we want, get what we want, take aim, take responsibility for our lives. And it's it's really beautiful emergence out of that one. And then the next is, I call it the indulged style. And this is when we're kind of unaware of how our actions impact others. And so we just want everything to go our way and expect everything to go our way. 
And we're a little bit impatient, a little bit demanding, a little bit out of touch with the collective. And so coming out of indulged is all about um, entering a state of interbeing where we are aware of everybody else's value and and our own in a new way that's a little more relational, a little more involved with you know the environment and animals and other people and the world at large. So we're not just like a consumer supremacist kind of thing. And the next wound I call squashed. And this is when we literally squash ourselves because we're afraid that if we really stepped into our full shine, that that would be threatening for other people. But usually this is unconscious in us. We're not aware we're doing that. We're just like, I feel like everyone's bigger than me and I just have to play small in some way. And emerging from that, we sort of stand up into our full radiance and we embrace that we are as powerful as anyone else, if not that we have a little of the extra special sauce, which is why we've been keeping ourselves small. And it is our sacred duty to stand taller and shine brighter to remind everyone else of the beautiful essence that we all share at our core that is light and love. Two more. Then the next style I call provocative. And this is when we're a little bit overly sexualized. So we can be quite flirtatious. We can get ourselves into love triangles. We can feel jealousy or other people feel jealous of us in love situations. And we haven't known love untainted with drama. So there's a lot of provocativeness, dressing provocatively, flirtation, and a high sexual charge and seduction. And coming out of provocative is actually the antidote is to know that we are precious, that we are precious and worth protecting, and that it is okay for us to honor our instincts to say no. If we're provocative, we don't know we can say no. So we can honor our instincts and say no and and start to be more protective of ourselves and know the right place and the right time to share our tender sensuality, sexuality, and romance with people. And then finally, the constricted style. And this is if we're very self-conscious. Oh, and by the way, it should be noted that everyone has several of these styles. I have a little bit of all 12, (laughs) which is what made me the conduit for the work. But the constricted style is when we're a little self-conscious and We worry about not wanting to do the wrong thing. We always want to do the right thing because if we were to do the wrong thing, we might get caught, exposed, punished, humiliated, and we're always trying to avoid this humiliation. So we don't ever want to let ourselves spill out. We don't ever want to be messy, not our emotions, not our literal fluids. We feel like our animal part is bad and controlling it is good. And so we just constrict around ourselves and we try to hold ourselves in and and never, and never spill out. And the antidote to constricted is actually to become fluid and to trust our instincts again and to to become more instinctive and take more, more risks and trust our animal selves that our animal selves aren't bad, but are actually the best in us and learn that we're safe to follow our instincts. And there's the 12 in a nutshell. Thank you so much for sharing those. They are awesome. And I'm sure lots of people listening can relate to quite a few of them. Uh, so yes, if someone listening can relate and they think, okay, that definitely is my pattern, what's the next step? How do we then heal that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think for now, because these are things that I've created and spent the last 10 years finding my way out of. So in order to heal each one, I had to heal it in myself as well as my clients. So to really get that experiential healing. So kind of me and everyone I've taught are the only people on earth who know about these 12 things precisely and how to heal them. So I think that your listener would have to sort of come into my world, come follow me on Instagram, come join some of my free 
workshops or some of my paid workshops, download the Coping Styles Pocket Guide. I wish I could say they could go here or there to find stuff about it, but it's really just me. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. And you've got your book coming out as well. And I find often awareness is the key to transformation. Like once you are even aware that you have X, Y, and Z programming, you can then shift it. And so that's the first place. And maybe people listening are thinking, yep, I definitely was that one and that one. So that's the first step. And then we'll link to everything that you've mentioned as well in the show notes. If people want to dive deeper and work with you potentially or follow you on Instagram and dive deeper into healing this work. But I would love to hear in terms of our children, you know, how can I, I'll ask for myself, how can I make sure that these five years, my daughter doesn't have to deal with any of these programs? Like, how can I help her? You know, I think that most of us aren't aware of the psychological developmental stages that our children go through. And so becoming more aware of them is a really great place to start. And again, I I wish my book was out now. It's going to be about in a year. But just becoming aware of what the child is needing and feeling at each stage and and what they need our support around. But I would say, if you're not aware of those specifically, just pay really close attention to your child because they'll show you when things are off. They'll always show you. You'll start to see it like they'll they'll brace or they'll act out or they'll be a little extra in some way and you can just start to get the mirror of where you are based on are they shutting down? Are they acting out? Or do they feel buoyant and happy and centered and themselves? If it's the latter, you must be right on. And if it's the former, you're going to want to adjust your settings to to get closer to where they might need you to be. I was saying to my husband the other day that having children is like personal development on steroids because it makes you so, well, for me personally, I'll speak for myself, it's made me even more conscious of my words, of my actions, of how present I am. You know, it's reminded me so much of presence and patience. And yeah, I was just going for a walk the day and I thought, it is personal development on steroids, you know, or, you know, some people could completely shut down and just close off to the magic that's happening right in front of them. But, you know, my husband and I have chosen to be incredibly present with her and tune into her and watch her and observe, you know, just be the observer. I think a lot of parents were very quick to jump in and rescue or helicopter parent and save. But if we just take a step back and take a few deep breaths and observe our children, they are always talking to us, whether they're verbally or physically, they are always communicating. And that's something that I've really tapped into over the last couple of months. That is so beautiful. What an incredible journey you're on. And like, it speaks so much to you as a woman that you're using this opportunity to co-regulate and co-grow together and maybe be regrowing some of your neural pathways as you're developing hers. It's so beautiful. Oh, yeah. 100%. And I think as well, if we aren't conscious of this when we have children, we will 
just automatically go into our default, which is how we were parented. Mm. And maybe that was amazing. Maybe you were parented amazingly and you were overflowing with love and confidence, or maybe you weren't. And so I think when we have children, it's it's an opportunity to really dive deep within ourselves and, and heal lots of stuff within ourselves and also look at reprogramming some of our own neural pathways. Otherwise, we just go straight back into that default of how we were parented. Totally. Or a lot of us do the opposite, where we try to swing the pendulum all the way there. Well, I don't want to do what they did, so I'm going to do the exact opposite. And then it's just the other extreme in the other direction. But yeah, just really that that presence that you're talking about and that attunement to your child and the listening. And I did want to go back to what you were saying, because I didn't fully understand what you were trying to prompt me of like, what do they do next? I just want to underscore what you were saying about the power of naming these parts of ourselves and becoming aware of them. Because as soon as the unconscious gets mirrored back to itself, it starts this magical alchemical process where the healing starts to happen because we have an innate healing function within us in our unconscious that wants to heal. But if things are in a blind spot, there's no information, there's no feedback in the system for it to be healing itself. And as soon as we know, oh, wait, I am a little controlling. I really don't know the difference between me and my environment. Huh, let me feel into that. Let me become aware of that. Let me hold that in mind. Let me let that work through my system. It already can begin what I call the holy shift. Oh, I love that. The holy shift. I love it. Yeah. In a lot of my work, I I talk about that awareness being the first step, the key to all transformation. Once you are aware of something, you can't unknow it. Like once you know something, you can't unknow it unless you have one of those men in black, you know, those those zapper things in men in black where (laughs) they erase your memory. We don't have those. I'm pretty sure we don't have them. But once you are aware of something, like you said, the healing begins, that holy shift happens. So just naming it and going, huh, that's interesting. I've noticed that maybe I fall into that pattern Oh, I have fallen into that pattern in the past. You know, we want to be mindful of our language as well. You know, in the past, or Mm -hmm. I have, I am very, very conscious of I, as in now. I always, when I'm doing internal work, it's in the past, not in the present, because in the present, I'm just here. I'm showing up fully as myself. So we do need to be conscious and aware of our language that we choose to use. And another thing that has really helped me is saying there's a part of me. There's a part of me that Mm. feels like I need to control or there's a little part of me that doesn't feel loved or whatever. And instead of saying, I feel unloved or I'm controlling, because the words that come after I or I am are very, very powerful manifestations. Yes. Yeah. I always tell people, be careful with your pronouns (laughs) because there's so, what are you calling I? What are you saying is I? Yeah. That's a really beautiful, subtle thing to pay attention to. I love that. Yeah. It's an end. Our children are listening. They're listening to everything we say and they're watching everything that we do. Even though she is tiny, she is watching her mama do everything. She is watching how I interact with my husband. And there's a few things that I've noticed over the past couple of months. You know, I noticed Nick saying should, oh, I should do this or I should do that. And then we had a conversation and I said, is that something that we want to teach her? Like, do we want to teach her to should everywhere, you know, to should all over the place? I should do this, you know. 
And he was like, no, that's not really what we want to teach her. So we've become really mindful of that and, and not saying that anymore. And just little things like every word that you that comes out of your mouth and every action, they are absorbing. Even though they cognitively might not comprehend, they can feel the energy behind it. Yeah. And the other thing, and I mean, what you're saying is could not be more true. They are like little sponges and they will become little mini-me's of you. You know, they're, they're going to absorb everything you teach them explicitly and implicitly. The other thing though that I was thinking of when you were saying was like, also, I think it's okay to mess up our kids a bit. I think it's inevitable. And also, you know, they would have no hero's journey. I sort of think about like our childhood wounding sort of sets up the parameters of our lifelong video game where we keep passing levels and keep healing and keep revealing more of who we really are. So the idea of becoming a good enough parent, which means we get it right, by the way, one third of the time, that's that's a good enough parent in psychological terms. That's a beautiful idea. And if in some places we're not quote unquote good enough and we do pass down some of that generational pain that we've lived with, that's okay too. Like I, you know, I just want everyone to feel like back to the comparisonitis, that it's okay it's okay to be an imperfect parent and an imperfect person. And, and it's also so beautiful and like sacred that you are paying such close attention and wanting to give her that scaffolding that she gets to have a life that's a little less difficult than ours. And that's the human evolution. It's so beautiful what you're doing. Thank you. I think that's a really important point. And I talk about this a lot in comparisonitis is letting go of this idea of perfection and perfect, being the perfect parent, being the perfect boss, being the perfect friend, eating perfectly. You know, there's no such thing. And the sooner that you delete that word from your vocabulary, the quicker you will be back on your path. I think when we're constantly striving for this idealistic, perfect dream life, we are always going to block ourselves. So we need to let go of that and just do our best. <laughs> just simply be the best parent that you can be in this moment. Be the best partner that you can be in this moment. Be the best friend that you can be in this moment and in, make great healthy food choices in this moment and let go of this idea of perfection because that is only going to keep you in that comparisonitis spiral and block you from being fully in the present moment and being the best version of yourself. Yeah, and I love that idea of fully being in the present moment. And this idea of uh, perfection, it's that idealizing wound that I was talking about earlier, where we're only paying attention to our outsides, how we appear, how we might be viewed, what it looks like, or how what our rank is, how we're performing. And what we're missing from that is our deep inner experience of being alive. All our sensations, our breath, our emotions, our essence energy, our soul, which has nothing to do with, am I a good parent, a bad parent, the best parent, the worst parent? It's just a connection with ourselves. And from that more connected place, when our organism is organized around real embodiment and presence and love, from there, I think naturally everything is going to come easier in life and, and be in a little bit more of a state of alignment. And so it's really shifting that focus from the outsides. Am I eating right, the right thing? Am I parenting in the right way to how do I feel right now? What do I need right now? What's it like to be me right now inside of my juicy body with flesh and breath, sensations? And it's just that shift from the outsides to the insides that's so powerful. 
for. That's where all the magic happens. Yes. That's where our spirits are. That's where our energy is. That's where our real experience is. Because the other thing is just an idea. I talk in the chapter about when we're idealizing, we relate with our self-concept, like an idea of ourselves, our resume, how we might look on paper, versus our fully fleshed out three-dimensional human self that's so deep. You know how we were talking at the beginning about depth versus surface? There's so much depth to us that's so much deeper than how things look at the surface of things. 100%. It always is so much deeper. I really have chills right now because I feel like as we're talking about it, I feel like even both of us are going a little deeper into our beings right now. 100%. 100%. I love this so much. I'm so fascinated by this whole concept and I am so excited to read your book when it's out. Cannot wait. I would love to hear what are you consciously working on within yourself at the moment? Sure. I mean, a million things, (laughs) but um, you know, I don't know if I explain this explicitly, but I tried to write the book a decade ago from my head, like conceptually. And it didn't go anywhere. No book agents wanted it. And I was so confused because I'm like, I know I'm the conduit for this material. Why is it not flowing? And it's because I was writing it from my head. And so then the universe started having me experientially live each style where they would sort of set me in the center of the labyrinth and my life would be very painful and confusing. I'd be like, why do I feel like this? Why is everything falling apart? What's happening? Oh my God, what is this? And I'd have to figure out the anatomy of the style, figure out where it came from, and also how to heal it. And only then could I put pen to paper and write the chapter once I'd been through it experientially. So I still have a chapter and a half left of the book that I'm writing right now. So I'm living. (laughs) I'm living a couple of the styles right now. I've just exited the provocative wound. I'm still kind of integrating it, that idea that I'm precious and to not overexpose myself sexually or romantically. And I'm stepping into right now the constricted wound, which you know, it's the one that I was like, I don't think I have that one. I know I have the other 11, but I don't think I have that one. But I do. I do have this fear of a grand superego or some judge high on a mount that is going to decide if what I'm doing is okay or not. This like all seeing eye that wants to tell me what's right and wrong and possibly punish me. That is somewhere in there inside of me. And I do feel like a deep holding in my like deep core and my lower chakras. And I'm like, oh, I'm scared. I'm scared of being judged or punished. And I've just been sort of feeling into that energy. But maybe my my favorite technology that I've learned recently was coming out of the omnipotent wound and learning this thing about embracing, which is probably the most powerful thing I've learned in this entire decade of emerging from each style, which is that when when I feel aversion to something, either something inside of me, like a feeling I don't like, or a thought that scares me, or something outside of me, like someone's behaving in a way I don't like, or my circumstances aren't the way I want them to be. Whenever I have an aversion to something, instead of trying to, when we're omnipotent, normally what we do is we try to fix it or kill it off, like get it away, right? Or something like that. But instead, I I learned this technology of turning toward it with an open heart and fully inviting whatever it is into my heart to embrace it fully. And holy mac, it's an entirely new experience. I'm not afraid anymore in the world. Like everything is okay. Even the stuff that's not okay is okay because it's all embraceable. I mean, it might make me cry. It might make me sad, but it's not going to kill me if something's out of place. And I'm starting to live by filtering my whole day-to-day experience through my heart as my organ of perception 
instead of my brain as my organ of perception, whoa, it is such a difference. I know people talk about this all the time. You've got to get out of your head and into your heart. But this technology of turning toward with an open heart, embracing, calling it home, welcoming it, welcome here. You are welcome here. My fear, oh, my fear is here. Welcome, my beautiful fear. Welcome into my heart. I'm, I'm here with you. It just shifts the tenor of it dramatically. I love that so much. So beautiful. I have a little visual that I do when any fear or sadness or anything arises is I literally open my arms and I visualize it like a wave <laughs> washing over me and just allowing it to wash over mm. me and not try and stop it or resist it because you actually cannot stop waves from washing over you. If you, if you try, you might get tumbled around. But I just allow that sensation to wash over me and knowing that it will pass. One of my favorite mantras is this too shall pass, but just allowing it to wash over me, not resisting it, not trying to stop it or suppress it. That's really helped me. And literally opening my arms when I feel like I want to push my shoulders forward and hunch mm. forward and close off and shut down and run and hide and just shrink. I literally push my shoulders back, open my arms up wide and just invite that feeling to wash over me like a wave. And it really helps having that visual. Mm. That is incredible. I always talk about that, like that feelings are just like a wave that wants to crash upon the shore. And if we try to resist it, it just makes it take longer. And that if you fully surrender into the wave, I found that if I really surrender into a feeling, it usually passes within like two, three minutes if I really let myself feel it. And when we don't let ourselves feel it, like you said, you can either get tumbled by it or if it gets really stuck and calcified, that's what becomes quote unquote depression or anxiety. It's our unfelt feelings. So yeah, that's such a beautiful idea. Like just Ah, embracing, opening your arms and letting it wash over you and trusting the process, surrendering into the arms of the universe. Yeah. And being held by the universe, being held by mama earth. I think that's a really beautiful thing that we need to remember that we're never alone and that we're always being held and visualize the universe wrapping its arms around you. And remember that anytime we do try and stop a feeling or an emotion and suppress it, it causes dis-ease in the body. And like you said, depression, you know, it will cause a disharmony in the body. So open your arms. I know mm -hmm. it can feel really big sometimes, but just remember that the universe is wrapping its arms around you. It's so funny as we're talking about this, I'm remembering one time I had this daydream that if we ever got to the place in society where we were like living in a utopia and we'd fixed all our social problems and all our environmental problems, that people would still be picketing, but their signs would say, all feelings just want to be felt. <laughs> like when we're at that level of nuance of correcting our society, it's like, don't resist the feelings. Yeah. Anybody who's resisting your feelings, stop resisting your feelings. All feelings just want to be felt. <laughs> we need t-shirts. We need t-shirts that say that. Yes. yes. <laughs> Let's get to that level of nuance of what we're working with in our society. Yeah, absolutely. Let's pretend now that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school in the entire world. Now, besides your book, because that absolutely... <laughs> know, like, how narcissistic is it if I'm like, my book? <laughs> no. Let's pretend that's already there. Okay, because okay. it should... Like, it's amazing. Your book sounds amazing. Definitely reading. Definitely reading material for everyone. But if there was one 
other book that you could choose to wave your magic wand and put in every high school? Possibly Charles Eisenstein's book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. Unfortunately, he was a philosophy and mathematics major at Stanford. And so unfortunately, it's written a bit like a philosophical treatise. So it's not the easiest book to read. It's a, it's slightly heady, which is funny because the title is The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. But if you can get over the language and just get into what he's saying, he is a profound leader in our times. I, I really think that he's going to walk us into the new world, but he has, he puts forth ideas about how we can live in harmony with one another and with the world and trust our capacity as co-creators of this reality to dream a new world into existence that truly does not have the problems that we live with now in a way that isn't, that doesn't have to be violent for us to get there, doesn't have to be some big heroic crazy thing, just more like of a uh, relaxing into who we really are and creating our world together from there. He's probably the most profound human being, I think, that's alive right now. <laughs> I know that's a, that's a grand thing to say, but yeah, I would I would get into his stuff. And if you feel moved by him, he's, he works on donation only. So, you know, like I, I'm a monthly donor for him so that he can keep living and doing what he's doing because it's real magic. Mm, beautiful. I've not read that or heard of it. So I'll link to it in the show notes. It sounds fascinating. So thank you for sharing. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so, I, if anyone gets to learn about Charles Eisenstein through me, I would be so happy. You could listen to his interview on the Aubrey Marcus podcast. You should have him on your show. Holy moly. Yes. This man. Definitely. Oh my God. It's a whole nother level. <laughs> Watch this space. I'm going to get him on for sure. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now I would love to hear about your routines and rituals that you do throughout a day. Can you talk us through like a quote unquote typical day in your life from when you wake up? Like, do you meditate? What are your rituals and how does your day flow and unfold? Every day is a little bit different, but I'll get into the rituals. So when I wake up, I have my yummy breakfast that we already talked about and my hot cocoa. <laughs> And then I meditate and I usually do the Joe Dispenza 24 minute meditation. I just find that the frequency he's created with the combination of his voice and what he's saying in the music, like just creates this kind of womb of possibility. And from there, I just like create new mantras or new embodiment practices while I'm in that held space for, for 24 minutes. And then I'll often go for a walk. I live in the hills in Los Angeles. So I like to go for a walk and listen to maybe a podcast, listen to Charles Eisenstein's podcast, A New and Ancient Story, get inspired, move my body, breathe, sweat, get a little sunshine on my skin. And then I start my day. I have two cats named Pen and Paper, who I'm always snuggling with throughout the day. <laughs> And I have a lot of sort of plates spinning, a lot of different aspects to my businesses. I own a, a group psychology practice. I also am now doing this more public facing thing where I'm teaching workshops and all of that. So there's always a lot of, and social media and a lot of planning and, and things go into that. So I take meetings all day, either with my employees, the therapists who, I'm, who I supervise, or I'm teaching courses, or I'm meeting with my staff so that we can be planning out what's next. And then in the evenings, I like to be social. I have a lot of, you know, plans with friends, lots of like dinners and cozy time and um, snuggles and adventures. And the other night I went to my friend's house for dinner and she not only cooked me dinner on a Tuesday night, but she was like, I have a surprise for you. And she zoomed in a tarot card reader. No one's ever done anything this generous and random for me. 
she had bought me a tarot reading and it was profound. <laughs> Alexis Silvaggio, I'm giving you a call out. Everyone should check out Savage Chocolate. <laughs> but she just, she totally spoiled me in that way. And I, I have a very rich community of friends who are all, you know, in a similar space doing the work, also really enjoying being alive and being in community. So I really love, I love spending cozy time with good friends. And I also have a neighbor who I sing with a lot. I love singing. I used to be in a band. So we sing in harmony all the time and I'm, that's like heaven for me. Can you do a little bit of a song right now? Can you just sing us something quickly? Okay. Oh my gosh. What should I sing? Uh, What are songs? I don't know songs. What's a song I could sing? Um, Anything, anything that you have been singing around the house lately, anything. Now I'm sweating. You don't have to. I don't want to put you on the spot. No, I'm happy to do it. I think it's fun. (laughs) I think it's a great idea. And actually, I'm trying to sort of integrate like, yes, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm also a singer. I'm like a lot of things, you know. Okay, so this is me doing a cover of Jeff Buckley, doing a cover of an old standard called Satisfied Mind. How many times have you heard someone say, if I had money, I could do things my way, but little they know that it's so hard to find. One rich man in ten with a satisfied mind. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Holy moly. I'm a little nervous, but it was good enough. That? You are an angel. You are an angel. Oh my gosh. I could listen to you forever. Thank you so much for sharing. (laughs) And if I had a voice like that, I would be whipping it out on my podcast every episode. (laughs) (laughs) I'll remember that when I have a podcast. (laughs) I'll sing all the time. Oh, honey, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and for sharing your day and how it flows. It sounds beautiful. And I love that you meditate and you move your body and you nourish your body with beautiful foods and you're doing work that nourishes your body and you've got friendships that nourish your soul. I would love to know what is the meditation that you do of Joe Dispenza's and we can link to it in the show notes. Yeah. I mean, it's a 24 minute long meditation. If you search on YouTube, I can text it to you guys or email it to you guys. But actually we're, we're hoping and praying he doesn't take it down because he's had a history of like, he, he doesn't offer any meditations for free. So people kind of like bootleg put them up online. So right now it's, it's up there, but hopefully it'll stay there. All right. Well, if it's there, I'll link to it in the show notes. Wonderful. And I also meditate before bed and there's so many wonderful meditation teachers on Insight Timer, so many incredible people on there. So I highly recommend that as well. Yes, I've got quite a few meditations on there too. So check out mine if you're interested. Ooh, I want to listen to you on there. (laughs) A little promo, self-promo for myself. I'm going to listen to you tonight. Oh, good. And I'll be replaying you singing your beautiful angelic voice. It was just so divine. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for inviting that part of me into this space and helping me be more of who I really am. Pleasure. Okay, my darling, I have three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Let's do it. Let's go. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? Self-love. Yes. 
what is one thing that we can do today for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Trusting that money is just an, a currency or an energy and opening your openings to allow it in and looking at any places that you have funky projections on money because it's just a neutral currency and opening your openings. Mm, beautiful. I love that. And the final one, what is one thing that we can do for more love in our life? I think self-acceptance, you know, loving all of our parts. So then we arrive already loved, as this teacher Mariah Fenton Gladys would say. And that allows other people to love us a lot more easily when we're coming from there. Beautiful. This has been so beautiful. I have loved this conversation so much. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything else that you feel to leave us with? Um, I'm just excited that we're connecting and to be able to connect with your audience. I just feel so grateful that you invited me on and I'm, yeah, just feeling really grateful and, and happy. So thank you. You're so welcome, honey. I want to personally thank you for not only sharing your beautiful work with us today, but for all the work that you do in the world for humanity. It's making such a difference. We need more light workers out there doing powerful work like this. And you help and serve so many people. So I want to know how I and the listeners can give back and serve you today. What can we do to serve you? Oh my God, that's so generous. I would really appreciate if you would follow me on Instagram, if you're a listener, because I'm still growing into that space and also join my newsletter. And you can do that by getting the free Coping Styles Pocket Guide as well. And just come with me on this journey, you know, of, of discovering more of who we really are and, and the things blocking us from that and all the wonderful embodiment exercises that I can lead people through. And yeah, I'm just, I've been kind of in the proverbial basement with this stuff on my own for 10 years and working in my private practice. And I just started pivoting public facing about a year ago and it's, you know, it's kind of slow going. So I'm really, I would be so honored and so nourished and so excited to welcome more of you into the Dr. Sam and Source Code world. And we will link to all of your goodness in the show notes. Thank you so much, honey, for being here and for sharing so openly and honestly and for sharing your beautiful voice. <laughs> Heaven, mm -mm -mm. you are delicious, that voice. Thank you. So thank you, my love. And I'm so grateful. Thank you. Don't forget to head to comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think. This episode has reminded me of how precious these first five years of Bambi's life are. And I can't wait to read Sam's book, but I'm so much more aware and conscious of how important these first five years of her life are. And also, how amazing was her voice? Holy moly. In my next life, I really want to come back with like a Beyonce voice, that's for sure. So I absolutely loved this conversation. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all my episodes will pop up in your feed so that you don't have to go searching for new episodes. So please come and subscribe. And come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what you got out of this episode. I absolutely love hearing from you. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock.
Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.